agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Mike. Happy belated Thanksgiving. Yeah, same same to you. You know, I've, I'm, I've been looking forward to doing this show for you for a number of reasons, but one is that we we are actually not planning on leading with impeachment and what a, <laughs> what a relief i don't know in, in a way i'm sure we we'll back as the lead story but before we do get to our stories i wanted to let folks know that uh, just a reminder that we have that new subreddit for our daily discussions and we moved from facebook just because well, you, you know how Facebook is, Kristen. I mean, you spend your I you do. spend a lot of your time on Facebook, and uh, it just didn't feel like the right kind of forum for the sort of debate and discussion and conversation we were trying to put together. And so the the face the sorry the uh, Reddit uh, the subreddit actually is new and it's kind of much lower key, much more. Uh, I, I think it's just kind of more civil and, and and that sort of thing. I like it a lot, and it's just a brand new thing. There aren't a whole lot of people on it yet. We're trying to build up a community there. So mm-hmm. if you are interested, all you have to do is just go to Reddit and type in a search for bipartisan politics, or you can just go to the link that we will put in the show notes. And uh, there's not a whole lot of stuff there. We're not just trying to throw up content to be you know viral or get people worked up you know one or two things a day is is about it and i kind of like that pace it's a nice change i think so yeah you know definitely reddit this the spirit of reddit i think is more along the lines of the spirit of the politics guys if i if i dare say so yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah so with that out of the way Kristen, do you want to lead us off here with our first story Sure. So, um, you know, Mike and I, we were discussing, um, you know, how what story we were going to lead off with, because this this week has been pretty slow news wise. Um, But there but there have been some interesting things, which is kind of a like like you said, Mike, a nice break from the usual. You know, the we're all kind of getting impeachment fatigue on both Mm -hmm. sides, I guess. So um, this first story is um, no surprise. We're going to talk about Trump's trip to Afghanistan over Thanksgiving. So this this past Thursday was Thanksgiving. And while many Americans traveled to see family and friends and they gathered around the tables to eat turkey and tofurkey and all the trimmings, um, reporters who followed the president on his travels gathered for a scheduled press conference at Mar-a-Lago. Um, which was interesting. And uh, President Trump had been in Florida for a few days. He was at a rally here in uh, my home county of Broward County. The rally was actually about five minutes from my house. And then um, he was in Florida for this planned Thanksgiving vacation. And this is what the press thought. But the president, however, did not show up. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> By the time reporters found out that he and a small group of press folks and advisors had been in Afghanistan for Thanksgiving, Air Force One was already well on its way back to the United States. This was very interesting. And in case you were wondering about the details, um, you know, you were busy this week. We understand the visit was planned for weeks, um, but it had kept been kept under tight wraps more so than uh, most of his other official trips. And Trump served uh, served surprised servicemen and women Thanksgiving dinner at uh, Bagram Air Force Base and made a rousing speech. And he also sat down with the Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani. 
So that is that is what the president was doing on Thanksgiving, a little different from what you and I were doing probably. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Any takeaways from from that, Mike? Or? Well, to me, the big thing was his uh, President Trump's announcement that uh, talks were back on between yeah. the U.S. and the and the Taliban. And these are the same talks that the president said were dead, you know, just less than actually three months ago. Yeah. And I don't really know what, if anything, has changed since then. And, and I still can't see the basis for any sort of a compromise. And, and here's why. So the Taliban wants us out of Afghanistan. And mm -hmm. uh, they don't recognize the legitimacy of the current a Afghanistan government, which they see as a U.S. puppet regime. So why does the Taliban want us out? Obviously, because they want it to be easier for that for for their ability to assert reassert, sorry, control over Afghanistan. And of course, the U.S. wants to ensure that Afghanistan doesn't become more of a breeding ground, safe haven for terrorists, which obviously was a, a huge problem, uh, you know, why we were there in the first place. So. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't see what, what what the compromise here is, right? I mean, the, the Taliban, sure, maybe they agree to a ceasefire, but the Taliban's an Islamic fundamentalist movement that, you know, believes in, in, in jihad. So mm. they're going to, what, agree to a ceasefire, we're going to leave, and they're going to break the ceasefire because the ceasefire, I mean, that their whole point of being is to wage jihad and, you know, uh, have that sort of sh Sharia law in and, and take over in that area. So I don't I don't understand how this would possibly work. So maybe you could say, well, the Taliban and Donald Trump want the same thing as they both want the U.S. out of Afghanistan. Uh, but aside from that, it, it could be a short term, I guess, rhetorical victory for President Trump saying I got the troops out of Afghanistan. But longer term, it seems to me it's completely to the detriment of the United States. And so I don't, I don't see the point of any of this. I guess it's a, the only point I can see is it's, it's a photo op for the president and that's about it. Yeah. I, you know, I have to admit, um, I have a lot of friends who are, I would call them more hawkish Republicans. And I, I have a lot of friends who are more libertarian leaning Republicans. And there's this big ideological divide in in my party over whether or not we get the troops out of any foreign conflict. And certainly Afghanistan is is front and center. And I have debates with my husband constantly about this because he is of the mindset that, yes, we pull the troops out. And at the risk of sounding like I'm stuck in the middle, which is frequently where more and more where I find myself <laughs> in, in terms of party ideology, um, I too have some reservations with, um, I guess, negotiating a ceasefire because I think on one hand, you know, you've had this war in Afghanistan. It's been going on for 18 years, which is like a staggering number of years. When I think back to like what I was doing 18 years ago, you know, how, how different things were and how different the world looked. Um, right now we have, I think it was 12,000 troops that remain in Afghanistan, which is less than less than there were. But we've also in 18 years, we've seen 2,400 Americans killed since 2001 in Afghanistan. So there's a big part of me that says I completely understand this notion that, you know, maybe it's time to end this war. Maybe it's time to broker a deal. That being said, and, you know, I'll leave that right there. Um, 
I think it, it could be terribly problematic pulling the troops out because then you create this power vacuum, which is a little, you know, it's it's what you mentioned. Um, the Taliban will come in. Obviously, they want the U.S. to leave. And so this is kind of eventually this will fall in their favor if they're able to get more of a stronghold there. Um so, you know, this is this is very tricky. And I have I would venture to say that I have mixed opinions about it. But I'm not I mean, I guess I'm not surprised that that this is when it was announced. Um, you know, he's in front of a, a friendly audience. He's in front of the troops and they're going to applaud whatever he says. So, um, you know, the fact that he met with the Afghan president, I mean, I think that's I think it's a like you said, a great photo op. Um, whether or not it's going to move the ball in one direction or the other, I don't know. I mean, I guess. I guess you could say what's the harm in negotiating, but but then what is the end game? If the end game is pulling these troops out of Afghanistan, then that could create a real problem. And that's something that a lot of high level military officials have warned against over the years, especially regarding the Taliban. Yeah, well, I think negotiations only make sense if both sides have something that right. they uh, agree that they want. And our our end game aims are, it seems to me, irreconcilable. And I yeah. don't so I don't see the basis for any negotiation. In fact, I, I would argue that our stance, we should look at Afghanistan in the same way we looked at, uh, say, Europe after yeah. World War Two, and that we have to understand that this is a this is a generations long commitment. And it doesn't have to be a huge financially erroneous commitment. I mean, you know, under 10,000 troops will probably be um, more than enough. But. The fact of the matter is, is that poor, corrupt countries are always going to be an inviting place for terrorists. And and we can't wish that away. We can't just leave and close our eyes and, and hope for the best because we know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So uh, if I were in the president's position, I, I would not only promise to keep a robust troop presence in Afghanistan as long as it's needed, I would also try to work out a military, a, a treaty with Afghanistan that actually formalizes that. And because, you know, treaties require a supermajority of the Senate and they actually override laws if they're in conflict, that that gives that a sort of real legitimacy. Because right now all we have with Afghanistan is this bilateral security agreement, which means like basically next to nothing, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I would actually double down on our commitment because I, I think and I understand, you know, more libertarian folks would disagree, but I think we have an important role to play here in the world. And one of my biggest problems with the Trump foreign policy has been just just this idea that we can withdraw from the world and just hope that other people will pick up the slack. And, yeah, other people will pick up the slack. Uh, uh, Russia, uh, the Taliban, mm -hmm. the sort of people we don't want picking up the slack. And so I think the the Trump foreign policy has been, uh, generally speaking, pretty pretty bad and uh, that for, for that exact reason that he wants to it seems to me go in exactly the wrong direction yeah it it just it it also seems to me and i and i agree with you uh for the most part i i think um in the past you know we've we've had this a legacy of you know, doubling down on our, I don't want to say occupation, but our presence in, in these, in these countries. And I just, I can't think, I'm thinking back to like the last 18 years, you know, since 9-11, I can't think of a situation where we withdrew from a country and things ended well. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I can, I really cannot think of, of a situation like that. And I too think of Europe after World War, after World War One and World War Two, what not to do versus what to do. And, 
you know, obviously it's a huge monetary commitment. It's a huge commitment for, you know, our armed forces. It is still putting them in harm's way. I mean, Afghanistan is still considered an active combat zone, you know, so it's, it is, it is a dangerous situation, but I, I, I would agree with you that I, I can't think of a situation where we withdrew carte blanche and things ended up well. You know, I think, I think Syria, you know, there was an announcement that we were going to withdraw and, um, you know, things ended up well for now, but that still hasn't happened yet. So I I can't really look at Syria and say, okay, there's an example of when that went well. I mean, when when, when you're fighting non-state actors who are deeply committed to what they're doing. And and so this is, in a sense, I think this is just Donald Trump sort of this is a being a, an old boomer kind of guy attitude saying that you could just, you know, withdraw and it's OK. This isn't World War Two, which is really the last time that we yeah. just kind of were able to just sort of go home and everything was OK. But we were dealing yeah. with, you know, with states we were fighting, you know, even in Korea. Right. We've been in Korea since in a big way. Right. Since the 1950s. So. That's the new reality of this. And we can like it or not. It doesn't matter. But we we can't just pretend it. We can't just pretend it away. And that seems to me to be the the basis of this this foreign policy. And I just think it's completely, completely wrong headed. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that I'm hoping that this goes the way that I want it to go. Um, I just. You know, I can't help but think of, I don't know if you listen to, do you listen to Serial, Mike, the podcast Serial? I, I have listened to it in the past. Yeah. 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 So, so season two, it's funny because se- season one got all the fanfare and right. it was a wonderful season. And it, of course it got a lot of people into the, into podcasting, which is great. Of course we're biased, but season two was all about the Bo Bergdahl mm-hmm. situation. And it's funny because I've, I've like fiercely defended that season as the best season. I know a lot of people, you know, disagreed with me and said, oh, how, you know, I like season one better. I preferred season two. And one of the the things that that I credit that season for, for doing, I actually, I approached it with an open mind. I know how I felt about Bur- Bo Bergdahl. My, my feelings about him and, and what he did haven't really changed. But one of the things that that season did was they were interviewing um, these higher level military officials and these people who are on the ground in, in, um, in Afghanistan in particular. And it really changed my mind as to you know, staying involved and in, and and having a presence in these countries because before that I had taken a much more libertarian approach for some time. Yes, pull them out. We got to get the troops home. Listening to that and listening to these higher level military officials say, no, that's not how this works. I mean, we're involved, you know, yeah. in these conflicts and in this war, and it's it's something. You know, I guess it it brought some level of understanding because I haven't you know, been on the ground in Afghanistan. I don't know how, how things work there, but it brought this whole new perspective of like, we can't even get into the heads of these insurgents and our enemies here because it's not what we would consider to be rational. It's just, it's a whole other mindset. Right. And so, you know, I, I think that that's important. That's important. It's an important thing to remember going into something like this. And I can't help but think about <laughs> serial season two when when I hear, you know, when I heard about President Trump talking about this while he was on the ground yeah. at Bagram Air Force Base, you know, just kind of like this. Do we really know who we're dealing with here? We're not dealing with these legitimate state actors. Like you said, the world has changed. Terrorism has changed. You know, this is this is unfamiliar territory. And like I said before, I can't think of a situation where that worked out for us in yeah. the last 10 years. Yeah. So 
<laughs> Especially when our allies are weak and corrupt, and that's just af- I mean, Afghanistan's government is is is, is that exactly, and we can't change that ourselves easily easily either. You know, without the work of sure. again generations. Sure. So anyway, any other thoughts on uh, Trump's trip to Afghanistan? I guess that was the big uh, the the big news story yeah. of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, shall we move on? Yes, let's. Okay. So, so this, uh, so the next story is something, I don't know about you, Mike, I've been dying to talk about this because, um, it's, it's, uh, it's an international story and it's something I've talked about a lot with, um, with like-minded and not like-minded friends, but I'm glad we get to talk about it here. So this is, uh, this has to do with, um, Trump signing the Hong Kong support legislation earlier this week. So, um, hopefully we haven't all been living under rocks, but the protests in Hong Kong began in this last June, which surprised me. It feels like it like they haven't been going on this long, but they really have. Um, and this was all over a bill that would have allowed uh, criminal suspects in Hong Kong to be extradited to China in some situations. And so these freedom seeking protesters have revolted. Um, you know, and they obviously are are very upset that violence has escalated. So elected officials and citizens here in the U.S. have been watching these protests with a lot of interest. Um, I know I have. While some believe that supporting the protesters would harm our relationship with China, others saw this as an opportunity to help those who fight for freedom over communist governments. So, you know, in all of this, the Hong Kong police have been granted quite a bit of power from Beijing um, when it comes to quelling the protest and plenty of viral videos are showing chaos and violence. It's gotten pretty out of control. So after quite a bit of speculation as to whether or not he'd support the legislation this past Wednesday, President Trump signed two bills. Um, The Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act initiates sanctions on Chinese and Hong Kong officials who commit abuses of human rights and would subject Hong Kong to an annual review in order to hang on to that nice little trade relationship they have with the U.S. And the second bill prohibits exporting non-lethal munitions, which includes things like tear gas, tasers, Uh, rubber bullets, stun guns, stuff like that, um, and more to the Hong Kong police. And of course, China is not very happy about this. Um, But the legislation did gain massive bipartisan support, which is worth talking about. And there was one lone holdout, which I was interesting to find out. It was Thomas Massey, Massey, Uh who we interviewed. So I thought that was very interesting. He was the lone holdout. So I don't know. What's your take on all this, Mike? Uh, yeah, apparently on Massey, I uh, I heard an interview. He said that yeah. basically he voted against it because he thought the sanctions were more or less a bluff and that we wouldn't follow through on them. But so I, I or maybe I don't know. He just wanted to be the lone guy. He does love being out there on his own. So, but, yes, yes. but more generally, you know, there was some talk last week that the president might uh, actually uh, veto that measure we knew it was going to pass and and pretty clearly he realized i think that this would be a veto that would most likely be overridden and no sure. one you know that would make him look look pretty weak but then i thought about it in a couple of ways now because obviously the president's main focus here the president has made it pretty clear that he doesn't care a whole lot about human rights as an issue he's just i mean you could look at the Khashoggi thing you could look at all sorts of other instances uh, uh you know in the philippines and other places he his attitude pretty much just seems to be let them do whatever they want in their countries we're just concerned about making the best deal for us and and, and okay i i find that while I may find that morally reprehensible, I, I get it, certainly. Um, and so I was trying to think, well, how might the president see this in terms of helping us, helping him negotiate an end to the trade war with China? And potentially you could say that, well, 
now the president can use the possibility of these congressionally approved sanctions and changing that special trade status of Hong Kong as a as a bargaining chip. And certainly he's not adverse to using, you know, cracking down on human rights as a as a as leverage. I don't think he cares about it in and of itself, but as a means to an end, I think that totally fits with his uh, uh, completely transactional style of politics. Yeah. So it's interesting just going back to the Massey thing, because um, I, I I'm not surprised at all that that he was yeah. the lone holdout in the House um, and the Senate in the Senate. It got I think it was unanimous yep. support mm-hmm. in the Senate, which also doesn't surprise me. Um, but one of the things that I found interesting is that you said that, um, you know, you hadn't that Thomas Massey gave an explanation of why he voted against this. I actually heard multiple explanations that he gave. One of them was that we already had legislation on the, you know, in the books uh, regarding things like this, which is something that he's brought up before. He doesn't like new legislation. It's a very libertarian approach to create, you know, creating legislation that doesn't need to be created because it's already been created sort of a thing. Um, The other thing that, that I've heard, and this was a more critical view, and this was something that I think a lot of, um, I, sometimes I get into the weeds with, stuff and I read these like crazy sort of conspiracy theory blogs. <laughs> and on the left, there there were a couple of um, prominent bloggers who mentioned the fact that he is, uh, his voting record tends to align with our Chinese and Russian interests more than other representatives, let's just say. I mean, obviously, they expressed this in a much less kind way. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, there, there was also that. And, and he talked, he, he did talk about in a radio interview in Kentucky, um, the fact that he, this was back when, you know, Trump was wavering, should I sign it? Should I not sign it? He sort of voiced the concerns about this ongoing trade negotiation, these trade talks with China and how this might you know, impede all of that and, and, you know, put a damper on that. So I heard, you know, there were multiple explanations, which I mean, again, I don't find any of that surprising, especially with Massey, but um, yeah, I mean, I I also understand President Trump's concern. Um, I think that, you know, that he has this really good relationship with China and, you know, with the Chinese president. And I think that um, I think he knew the consequences of doing something like this. But at the same time, I, I have to wonder if the Chinese expected him to do something else. I mean, like you said, this easily would have been overturned. It All it needs is a, is a two thirds vote in the House and Senate to, to overturn a, a presidential veto. So it would have easily been overturned. Um, you know, I think Trump's hand was forced. I don't think he had a choice. But from the beginning, he has said that he supported, you know, he said, we stand with Hong Kong. We stand with Hong Kong. I don't think there are too many people who are rational people on the right or the left that that don't understand what the protesters are fighting for. I mean, yeah. I stand with those protesters 100%. Um, but, you know, another thing that I think is interesting is that the Hong Kong protesters were invoking President Trump. I mean, they have been they were <laughs> parading around with that photoshopped picture of him on Rocky Balboa's body. And they, you know, they've been holding up Trump signs and American flag signs. So they've been really almost like pandering to him. You you, Um, you can't, you can't go wrong. Yeah. Uh, appealing to president trump's ego i was as a just general gonna rule. say that i was just gonna say that i i found that very interesting because i haven't seen much of that you know there there are protests going on it's funny because we get we're so wrapped up in impeachment like you said um and so you know we we kind of forget that there are these like freedom centric protests going on all over the world and there is you know these these violent protests and 
you know, few other places have invoked President Trump and have tried to appeal to his vanity quite like these protesters in Hong Kong. So I think that's an interesting angle, too. But yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that that he signed this legislation. And I personally think that he needed to. I think this was important to send a message, if nothing else, to China, um, you know, because largely they've gone they've they've kind of been going haywire. You yeah. know, um, the Chinese government has really overstepped its bounds. I mean, the interesting thing about Hong Kong is that it's considered a one country. I think it's like one country, two systems yeah. type of a, a scenario. And so, um, you know, they're supposed to have um, I think they're supposed to have like this sovereign judicial system. Um, they're supposed to have freedom of expression more so than people in mainland China. And all of that's sort of being chipped away at um, by the Chinese government. And so I understand their fears. Um, I, and I and I think this legislation is, is the right thing to do. I support it. Yeah, well, I mean, and I think, you know, the reason why China hasn't just completely cracked down on this is because they understand how important Hong Kong is. I mean, not not maybe directly if you looked at you know gdp and size of economy and all that sort of thing but an awful lot of in fact the majority of china's uh, foreign investment goes through hong kong and in, in part in large part because of those those freedoms is that investors have that confidence in their legal system and you know when you have a when you have a party run system where rule of law is subordinate to the wishes of the parties like like in mainland china that's the mm-hmm. kind of thing that that's the kind of thing that makes it more difficult for international uh, inter- international investors to to go in with confidence, and that's why in the end, and I think this is a very sort of old school anti communist argument that those sort of systems are just bound to not work out in the end. And China, I think, is really struggling to try to balance those things. It doesn't want to you know give up its control, but it also understands that it can't just be isolated from the system. And so and that's the battle. That's the larger battle that we're having, right? Is China wants it both ways. They want to be uh, they want to be able to do all the intellectual property theft that they want. They want to impose these draconian rules on anyone who comes into the country. And to a certain extent, they can because they have such a large domestic market. But in the end, that's not how the game can work. And And I have a certain amount of sympathy for the Trump administration in in its push to say, well, we need to we need to do something about this now. And I think the international community has been far too willing to let China go and to give in to China just because it happens to be such a such a big market. And so in that sense, I, I like what the Trump administration is trying to do. And I think it's worth a little bit of short term sacrifice. I only disagree with the methodology. And I think the way to do this is the way that someone like a George H.W. Bush would have done it is by getting together an international coalition. And that would make it a lot stronger and a lot more, I think, legitimate than than the way the president is doing it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to sort of touch on what you just said, I think it's it's really tough to understand how much of Chinese GDP is wrapped up in Hong Kong. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was I was I read a couple of articles about it last night just to try to get some numbers. Nine percent of China's GDP is wrapped up um, in the assets in the Hong Kong market. It's it's over a trillion dollars. So losing Hong Kong would be devastating. For the country of China, and it would destabilize 
a lot of things. But, you know, also China, you know, we can't forget China's trying to um, globalize their currency. They're trying to they're they're trying to catch up with the U.S. in terms of, you know, the U.S. dollar has sort of become a global currency. And they're I think they're trying to catch up. But like you said, they can't have it both ways. I mean, I can't I can count on two hands the number of people over the years I've had conversations with who, uh, you know, I'll start talking about China and they'll say, well, China's not really communist. It's not really socialist. Yeah. And I'll say, yes, it is. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, and I, and I point to situations like this. It's in those moments. I mean, sure. You know, they have this, this burgeoning market and, and, you know, you can travel there and, and these things that we're not used to hearing about from communist countries. I mean, I live, you know, at a short plane ride away from Cuba. I've been there before I studied abroad in Cuba and that is, you know, in every sense of the word, definitively a communist country um, on lockdown. China's not like that. But China also, you know, with these protests in Hong Kong, we've seen that they've given this you know, absurd amount of power to the to the police in Hong Kong. I mean, they're they're beating these protesters to a pulp and they're doing these atrocious things. And also this the the concern over this bill is that they would be extraditing and possibly jailing people like activists, journalists, you know, these people that are essential for for the cause of freedom in Hong Kong. I mean, so that so we are, like you said, we're really caught and and I too sympathize with the Trump administration. This is very tricky because the destabilized China could be you know, very dangerous, but then also, you know, not standing by people who are fighting against communism for the purpose of freedom is also just com- yeah. completely counterintuitive to everything we stand for. Yeah. And, and the Chinese yeah. government just has, you know, some big problems with trying to maintain. I mean, they can't maintain the sort of record growth that they've been generating. And so there are concerns about economic slowdowns. And of course, the whole Hong Kong thing plays into that in a big way. And and the fact that as they have more people that are are more materially well off, then they start to care about things like freedom of expression and, and stuff like that when they're not worried about just subsistence level sort of living. Right. And so this is, I mean, th- I, I certainly am concerned about uh, about China, as I think most people should be as a strategic threat to the United States, but they have, you look 10, 15 years out even, and they have just enormous, enormous problems that they have to deal with. And they really have a tiger by the tail here, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So before we move on, Kristen, I just wanted to thank some of our new supporters in this last week. Uh, There's Laura, who made a generous contribution to the show through PayPal, and she wrote, thank you for all you do to bring bipartisan discussion to current politics and policy. And thank you, Laura. We really appreciate it. And we'd also like to thank Josh, who increased his monthly support, as well as new supporters, Peter, Garrett, and Timothy. And Timothy wrote, I saw the promotion for a mug or tote bag at the $5 level this week and signed right up. And Timothy's referring to our uh, that Black Friday deal thing we did where all listeners who became supporters at the $5 a month level, including current supporters who raised their support to that level, got either a Politics Guys mug or tote bag, which normally is at the $10 per month or higher level. And, you know, Kristen, I, initially we planned on just ending this today, but I thought... We're actually releasing this show before Cyber Monday. I, I yeah. don't know if that's even a thing, but it's probably a thing somewhere. I don't know. It, just, it all runs together in my mind now. But I thought that we'll, we'll let it run for one more week. So if you want to get yourself a Politics Guys mug or tote bag, now is the time to do it. 
And, you know, I don't know if they'd make perfect Christmas gifts, but you know, what the heck? Sure. Let's give it to someone, <laughs> you know, that you love or like, or just, I don't know, feeling different about. Anyway. Secret Santa, maybe? There you go. You know, Santa, it's perfect for something yes, like that. Yes, yeah. definitely. Uh, and again, that's for anyone who becomes or moves up to being a Patreon supporter at only the $5 or more per month level. And that's also the level at which you get our weekly Politics Guys quick take. And of course, everyone who's a supporter gets the bonus show. And uh, and to find out, to sign up all for all that, you just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can just go to politicsguys.com slash support. Thanks so much. All right. So what do we have next, Kristen? All right. So the next... Uh story we're going to talk about it's it's going to be easy it's going to be hard to not get into the weeds with this one because it's so complicated but um last saturday um trey and ken i believe discussed the the pardons of the three service men um right. by the trump administration it was um Army First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence, Army Major Matthew Goldstein, and Special Warfare Operator Chief Eddie Gallagher. And of course, what we're talking about today involves the last of those men. Um, so they went into a lot of detail about the circumstances surrounding the par pardons. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend that you do. I listened to it twice just because I, I was interested in that particular conversation. Um, and um, since then, there's been a major development. Navy Secretary Richard Spencer has been fired um, as a result of, of this. So earlier this week, stories were clashing. At the center of it all is Chief Petty Officer Gallagher, who's a veteran SEAL. Um, his rank was restored by President Trump after the Navy demoted him. So um, there was a, quite a bit of talk, sort of three different stories going on regarding his firing. Um, Trump said that the decision to Spencer fire was about his leadership. Um, and he he came right right out of the <laughs> right out of the box saying that. And then there was um, Mark Esper, who told uh, reporters that Spencer had gone behind his and others backs to broker a deal Um with the White House to ensure that Gallagher would keep his SEAL status. Um, so this kind of had to do with insubordination. Um, and he said that Spencer contra contradicted his own public statements and his agreement with senior officials. Um, and of course, um, I guess in, in a splashier way, um, Spencer then hit back with an op-ed in the Washington Post, uh, which we'll discuss. And the big takeaway from all of this is that these senior military officials uh, Na former Navy, Navy Secretary Richard Spencer and President Trump sort of all have these s conflicting stories and there seem to be problems with all three. And that's, I guess, what we're going to get into today, yeah. as opposed to the actual <laughs> the actual pardon. Yeah. So um, so I guess, um, you know, what did you what did you make of all this? Did you you read the I assume you read the, the op ed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. I think, I yeah. Did. So did you did you believe what Richard Spencer or had, you know, did you believe what he had to say? Did you think there was it was like cognitive dissonance? Did you think it was a disgruntled former employee? I mean, what was your take? Because everybody seems to have a different take on that op ed. Well, I get what I get what Spencer was trying to do to, to keep the president out of the process as much as he possibly could. And I think that's a that's a smart that's a that's a good thing to that's a good thing to shoot for. But it's pretty clear to me that he was wrong to work around his superiors. And there's no way that he couldn't have known that. So if he wanted to keep the president out of things, then he should have done that in consultation with uh, uh, with, with Esper, with Secretary of Defense Esper. And he, right. you know, he decided that there had to be a reason for that, because there's no way that this guy who, you know, 
was in the distant past a Marine, understands the military culture and so forth. He understands chain of command. He knows that this was, this was a, essentially a fireable offense. And that, to me, suggests that maybe he thought that if he brought in Esper, Esper wouldn't support him in this, or there was some kind of internal politics going on. I don't know. But Spencer was, I think his ends were, were right. And I think President Trump was pretty clearly wrong to intervene as Ken. I thought Ken did a great job in, in making that case last week. And, and to me, it's not so much about the rank. Uh, you know, the president, you know, the president sure can, can say, you know, restore a rank to anyone or, or promote people. The president has awfully wide discretion when it comes to the military. But the, the right to wear that trident is, is about the confidence that a person's fellow SEALs have in, in the guy who, who's with them. And it's just as wrong for the president to prevent the trident from being pulled as it would be for the president just unilaterally to declare, say, hey, my driver, yes, he's a SEAL as of today. Now, he could legally do that. There's, there's nothing that prevents him from doing that, really, but that doesn't make it. Right. So the president's intervention in this is, I think, as Ken, you know, very well pointed out, is is a slap in the face to the military because I, that President Trump doesn't care about the military. He had a chance to join the military and apparently he had some convenient bone spurs that kept him out. I mean, it's it's all about the president feeling he's being disrespected or something like that. And he was the president was played by Gallagher's folks who understood how to manipulate him. This Donald Trump is just so incredibly easy to manipulate it. It's almost it's it's sad, really, in a way, what a what a pathetically how pathetically easy he is to manipulate because he's so emotionally immature, I guess. But uh this is just another example of this to me. Well, you know, I, I obviously have a slightly different take on it. Yeah, I thought you might. I thought you might. <laughs> um, you know, I so my thought process, just to in the interest of full disclosure, I know a handful of people who are involved with the free Eddie Gallagher movement. Um, it, a lot of them live in South Florida. I've gotten to know them through, you know, politics. A lot of them were involved in politics before Republican politics. Um, so, you know, all of that aside, um, you know, my own feelings about what, what Gallagher did and, you know, I guess the, the ruling, you know, on, on his, the rulings on his charges, um, you know, all of those feelings aside, this whole situation with the presidential pardon brought me back to, I think it was 2017 with Chelsea Manning. Um, and I remember hearing that, um, President Obama, um, had earlier commuted Chelsea Manning's sentence. Um, and I, I think, you know, I had a lot of conflicting feelings. This is something that Obama had done a couple times during his presidency, um, where he commuted sentences. He, he got involved in these, in these, you know, military tribunal type matters. And I thought it was, um, an overstep. And I also think that President Trump probably should have left this to the court, the court martial process, because I think that, you know, anytime a president gets involved on the on the behalf of, you know, a serviceman or a servicewoman and something like this, maybe he's not letting the, you know, the court martial process play out. It is kind of a slap in the face to the military. That being said, um, you know, and I and I have some reservations. Was it right? Was it wrong? I, I'm not really sure I wasn't there, but I think that the most important takeaway from all this is that Spencer did flout the chain of command. 
um, there was a breach in the chain of command. I I understand of the three stories, the one that I'm most inclined to believe is Secretary of Defense Esper's story, which is that this is something that's been, you know, he talked quite a bit about this being in the works for a while. They were unhappy with Spencer. Um, it's sort of a situation, and we've all seen this happen, you know, in, in, in various workplaces where somebody just isn't doing their job, isn't doing their job, isn't doing their job. Um, you know, you've, you've got a lot of anger. You've got a lot of, uh, I guess, bad feelings towards somebody. And all of a sudden, you're in this situation where they do something that's just maybe a little more egregious and you use that as, as the reason to fire sure. them. So, you know, of course, this all could have gone away quickly over, you know, he could have been summarily exited during Thanksgiving week without a lot of fanfare and without a lot of news coverage because it's Thanksgiving week. And that's what everybody's, you know, focused on. But that's not what happened. And I think that's the only reason why this made as big a splash as it did was it was over this like very controversial Eddie Gallagher yeah pardon. And, you know, but the bottom line is that I think that the right decision was made. I think that Spencer had to go. And I, of the three, the story I, I, I think I believe is probably Esper's story. And I do think that Spencer's op-ed in the Washington Post, I mean, I do think it's an, an example of somebody being wronged by the Trump administration running to the Washington Post or like the New York Times or, you know, MSNBC and, you know, g- getting upset. I, I kind of saw it as a disgruntled employee who was still very emotionally invested in this and, and was very emotional about his firing. Um, you know, President Trump's story didn't seem to make sense, you know, either in light of everything. So I, you know, I think maybe this was justified. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and in that op-ed, he did say that he was wrong to, uh, to work did. around the, the secretary of defense. Uh, and he I think he made some I think he made some reasonable points. But but again, you know, I, I this to me, the larger picture here is we've seen an awful lot of turnover uh, in the Trump administration. And in part, I wonder the extent to which it's because the best people don't want to be associated with the Trump administration. And I, I, I certainly I know that there are plenty of establishment Republicans who who feel that way. And so it might it might be harder for the for the president to to get the best people. Not only that, but the, given how erratic the man is, I think it's awful hard to instill a culture of of loyalty and respect when the commander in chief seems to have almost no loyalty or respect to anything except for his own, his own, uh, you know, political, political fortunes and adulation of the masses. And so he, you know, the president's supposed to lead by example. And I think the example has been just uniformly poor from the president. And I, you know, you mentioned establishment Republicans, I guess the, you know, cause I, again, I, a lot of times I find myself understanding what establishment Republicans, you know, what their objections are. And a lot of times I find myself not understanding what their objections are and siding more with Trump. But, you know, I, I can't see a situation. I know a handful of establishment, you know, Republican types, both former elected officials, um, current elected officials, and also just supporters who are, you know, I guess they would be given that dubious title of rhino, <laughs> Yeah. Republican in name only. I, you know, I don't know that that's who Donald Trump is trying to surround himself with. I mean, he, he, you know, he does like yes men as most, most presidents have shown that, that they do, they value loyalty. He tends to value it maybe a little more than most. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know that that's what he's going for, you yeah. know, um, but th- I think this is, this is kind of an example and a reflection of that. You know, you had somebody who breached the chain of command. Sure. This was probably an excuse to get rid of him and yeah. he probably needed to go. So, 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't see the controversy. And my guess is that um, Spencer's op-ed will, will and, and it has garnered quite a bit of attention in, you know, media, various media outlets, and then it'll kind of fade away. Yeah. The next, you know, hot and heavy news story. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, shall we move on to the Let's. final? Perhaps. Okay. This is a really interesting one, and I'm glad we chose to talk about it. So um, this involves um, the FDA issuing warning letters on CBD products, um, which are very popular right now. So with all the interest in CBD products lately, it's no wonder that the FDA, FDA made some headlines this week with warnings about CBD. Um, so I'm taking this right from the FDA website because I went to the source to see exactly what they said about it. Uh, they said the FDA is working to answer questions about the science, safety, and quality of products containing cannabis and cannabis-derived compounds, particularly CBD. So then if, if you go to the FDA website, um, they have a whole laundry list of of problems they have with CBD questions. Um, they mentioned that they've only approved one CBD product, which is um, a CBD drug that um, is used to treat epilepsy. So that is the only FDA approved topic. But I mean, there's a whole, if you look at the website, there's a whole list of um, possible side effects, um, you know, medical questions. This is, the testing is still ongoing. It can, you know, they mentioned that CBD can cause liver injury. It can affect metabolism. Um, if used with alcohol, it can affect your nervous system. Um, it, it, you know, obviously it affects your alertness. So, you know, I don't know. I know, um, I know you had some thoughts about this, Mike. Well, yeah, this is such a weird story because, I mean, this goes back to 2018 because in the 2018 Farm Bill, Congress made growing hemp, made hemp legal. And so what people took away from that is that all hemp derived products were also legal. And then we saw just CBD businesses spring out out of nowhere to where in some areas you can't, you know, there are like every, every other street right. corner practically and all, all over the place online. But early this year, the FDA issued a clarification indicating that CBD actually isn't legal to sell, though possession isn't illegal. And mm -hmm. the reason why, and, and this is a, such a weird thing because the FDA has this designation called generally recognized as safe or, or GRAS, G-R-A-S. Mm -hmm. CBD is not generalized, generally recognized as safe, so it can't be used as an additive in food or drink. And of course, there are CBD gummies and all the additives all over the place. That's not, that's not legal. Um, CBD is also an FDA-approved drug, as you mentioned, for that rare form of epilepsy. Mm -hmm. So it can't then be marketed or sold as a supplement because it, it, it's like taking, you know, uh, any other normal, you know, drug that you have to get a prescription for and just taking another form of it and saying you can just sell it because you opened up a store. I mean, you can't do that with, uh, with, with uh, you know, a heart drug or any other kind of drug. You can't do it with CBD as well. So, but even though it's illegal, People are selling it all over a place. And, you know, the FDA basically chose these 15 organizations to mm -hmm. send out letters to because they couldn't send out letters to the, I don't know, gazillion places right. that are selling it. But the letters essentially are, hey, this is illegal. You can't be, you can't be doing this. And so that's just so bizarre to me because right today, right now you could go and buy CBD, you know, no problem. And that, that to me just illustrates how there, these these regulatory agencies may have enforcement authority and these things may be illegal, but unless they actually have the ability 
to do this enforcement unless there's the political will to do it. Well, it's not going to happen. And this is exactly the case that we're seeing with, with the FDA because it doesn't have the resources to shut down all of these CBD sellers. And, and right. so, so to me, even the bigger picture here is you pull back and just look at just the, the wild west of the supplement industry. I mean, it's like a, like a, a $40 billion industry. And you don't know what you're getting in most of this stuff because there is no regulation. And and to me, this is just a this is just a travesty. And this is an area where I think that maybe there should be some bipartisan agreement that you know, regulating the safety of pills that people put into their bodies, whether they're prescription or not, maybe there's a legitimate role for government there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's funny because I was just last night I was walking around a little town center with my family and we, we walked into GNC to buy some protein bars for lunches for the week for my husband and I. And um, they, they were advertising all over the place CBD. I mean, it is everywhere. It's yeah. even at places like GNC. You know, um, there was a pizza restaurant and this was a whole big commotion in, in the city where I live, but there was a pizza restaurant that was putting um, CBD in pizza crust. And so they, you know, they were advertising it with big pot leaves, you know, all over the the glass. And um, I, I agree with you. I think that there, the system that we have now is clearly not working. I mean, it, it reminds me of the, the diet pill industry. It also reminds me of this sort of state by state, almost county by county rollout of medical marijuana, recreational marijuana. I mean, it's different from county to county, state to state. There's been a lot of talk. I know it's it's been CBD has been a really big issue in Texas, um, where some counties have been cracking down on on these like nutrition supplement stores, these, you know, private you know, mom and pop businesses that are selling CBD products. Um, you know, and the question is, can you make claims? If you make claims, what types of claims can you make? You know, what will they help? I mean, CBD is one of those things that affects everybody differently. And of course, there are varying levels of THC in, in CBD. You can have, you know, CBD that has negligible amounts of THC. And then you can, you know, you can, there's a whole spectrum yeah. of CBD. And a lot of times you don't know what you're getting. And so, you know, this is, I know we we talked about in a previous episode, so months back, the regulation of the aviation industry, and yep. we kind of we kind of both agreed that it was really problematic um, that the aviation industry wasn't regulated um, to the extent that maybe it should be. But we understood both sides, and I I think this is one of those situations where, you know, I, I full disclosure again, I've used CBD products. Um, I've used CBD cream. Uh, if I have a bad back, I've used it on my back. Um, I've not, you know, used CBD recreationally. I've not, you know, t ingested it. But, um, you know, I, I, you know, I know that CBD can be helpful, um, especially for people with chronic pain, stuff like that. But not having the peace of mind to walk into a store knowing what you're getting is really problematic. And it's, it seems to me that no matter, you know, state by state, county by county, you know, I guess if these federal agencies or these, you know, local police or whatever, if they want to get involved and they want to start regulating this, the, the problem is almost too widespread. And this is exactly what's happened with, you know, this campaign for medicinal marijuana and also for recreational marijuana is it becomes almost impossible. You know, you have to like cross county lines because county by county, state by state, it's regulated differently. And this is kind of the problem that we're running into yeah. with CBD. But man, it is everywhere. Yeah, like you it's, said, it's, it's, it's unavoidable. It's amazing how it went just from nothing to just yeah. you know, said everywhere. And, and to me, I would love to see a system where, where the, uh, the FDA had a pretty significant testing division. and 
that there would be a requirement that all supplements be submitted for testing and approval. And then a supplement would, every supplement would have to list either that they're FDA approved or not FDA approved prominently on the label. So that wouldn't, I mean, I could almost see this as a compromise, not saying that, well, this has been on the market for a while and so forth, but an idea that there is like a testing standard where that yeah. way any normal person could go in and say, oh, on the label, this says not FDA approved. So I'm taking my chances. On the other hand, this one says FDA approved. So I at least know what I'm getting. So I'm not saying that necessarily the government should say, well, you know, you can't a much heavier regulatory hand. But I would like to think there would at least be some kind of a compromise along those lines. And I would pay for that testing by a with a tax on the vitamin and supplement industry. And of course they would, they would fight, you know, it's, it's a fascinating story how in the mid nineties, they basically just really pushed super hard for this legislation that would allow them to do uh, really whatever the hell they wanted. The, oh, the, uh, fen, the fen fen scandal, you know, it was, fen, yeah, I remember that. And it just, you know, it's just the, how many people are, not just throwing away their money, but potentially just doing harm to themselves because we've seen these exposés where, you know, there's independent testing and it finds out that there's you know, massively more amounts or massively less. Yeah. So at least people should have the confidence that they they know what they're getting or that somebody who they can trust has tested this. And we don't have this in this industry. And that's a that's a huge problem, I think. And this is an area where government can step in and actually do some good. Yeah, I, you know, I, I read a really interesting article. I, I believe it was put out by the Mercatus, the Mercatus. And I, I can't really remember where I read it, but it was one of the arguments that was made is that the FDA standard should be applied to itself, which kind of goes along with what you were saying. So I guess I took that to mean that the agency needs to be held accountable if, um, you know, whatever regulation they're, I guess they're issuing doesn't achieve the desired results. So the FDA doesn't consider like trade-offs and, you know, risk for risk testing and stuff like that. If, if they issue, you know, if they issue a letter like this, let's say, and they're not considering the, the trade-offs with, you know, regulating, ma making CBD illegal, and they're not considering, you know, the trade-offs and, and the risks involved or, or the, you know, the risks that aren't actually there. Um, there's really no explanation of that in these letters. And so they should be held to the same standard and they should be required to report all of this. Because if you go to the FDA website, they 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 say things in very, I guess, <laughs> lawyerly terms. CBD can cause liver injury. CBD can affect the metabolism of other drugs. CBD can, you know, if you use it with alcohol, it can affect your central nervous system. But I feel like there's not enough testing and, and there's this standard hasn't been applied to their own studies. You know, they say they're going to continue to study this and they're, they're going to continue to look into this, but we have no guarantees. And, you know, I think your solution of putting, you know, having companies put directly on the label, whether or not something is FDA approved is probably a pretty good compromise, um, you know, because we do need that assurance that, you know, what we're taking, we don't necessarily need to know that it will work, um, but we need to know that it, that it at least, you know, you know, what's in what's in it, um, you know, what the possible side effects are, what the risks of taking something like this are, which is exactly what happened in the diet pill industry. And it's yeah. what we're what we're finding is happening now with marijuana, you yeah, know, exactly because um, I mean, you don't know what you're getting. You don't know what it's laced with. You know, when I bought CBD cream for my back, um, you know, I, I, I tried a little bit of it. I was very wary. I did a lot of research. But in the end, I don't know what was in it. I don't use it anymore. But, um, you know, I, I, I didn't know what was in it. I did. You know, I was taking a calculated risk. 
And, um, but I, you know, I knew the details. I knew the policy behind it. I knew that it was not something that was sanctioned by the FDA. Um, but a lot of people turn to these drugs. I, I can't tell you how many people talk about CBD. Um, like it's this, like it's this miracle yeah. substance well, and, and you don't know what you're getting. And that's, that's part of the larger argument that I sometimes have with my much more libertarian friends saying that, you know, yeah, if everyone were more like you and if people were rational and did their homework like you did, Kristen, you know, then yeah. that then we wouldn't have to have this regulation because people would say, well, you know what, this hasn't been tested. And I did some research and and this this so-called third party testing is paid for by them. And so there's a conflict. And those are all the things that people of really good critical thinking skills and a lot of education can do. But most people aren't in that position. They're going to be a lot more subject to be manipulated by the marketing. They're not going to be able to do the research. And so they're the ones who are going to end up being hurt. And those are the people we need to protect. Right. Agree. All right. Well, on that <laughs> on that note of agreement, maybe we yeah. should maybe we should. Uh, and well, we're not going to end because actually, as soon as we're done recording this show, we're going to be doing our uh, special bonus show just for supporters. We're going to do something fun again. Uh, you remember, <laughs> Kristen, a while back we took a test, a little quiz together. Actually, I liked it. Yeah. I thought it was fun. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to do the same thing this week, except it's a quiz about uh, it aligns you based on, uh, I don't know, like 18 questions or 10, I don't know how many questions yep. that aligns you with all of the like top 10 Democratic candidates. And so we're going to see which candidates I should be supporting and which uh, would maybe be least objectionable to Kristen, <laughs> I guess we could say. I so. haven't looked at it yet. I haven't even gone to the to the site. So I'm, I have my guesses, but we shall see. Yeah, in the I, th I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And also the uh, the quick take this week, and that's for supporters at the $5 a month level or more, is Trey. And Trey is talking about why you shouldn't be concerned or afraid of lobbyists. And I haven't heard that yet. And so that's I am deeply skeptical about this. And so <laughs> I, I am very curious curious to, to hear what, what this is all about. So I'm looking forward to that. And if you are a supporter, it should be in your podcast app by the time you're hearing this. And of course, we have a bunch of other supporter things at various levels, and you can find out all about it by going to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash politicsguys, or just going to politicsguys.com slash support. And if you just want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's also that bipartisan politics subreddit that I mentioned, reddit.com slash r slash bipartisan politics, or just search for bipartisan politics on Reddit, or just, you know, go to the URL that I'll have in the show notes. And then there's our Facebook page where we announce new episodes and that sort of thing. And we're on Twitter at politics guys. If you're not yet a subscriber to the show, it would really help us if you did subscribe, but that costs you literally nothing. So please do that in whatever podcast app you use. And if you could rate us and you know, say nice things about us, that would be great as well. We really appreciate it. The executive producer of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Will Moreno, Andra Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show is produced by Chris Metheny and Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.